All right, let's go ahead and go to the second question. It says, what is the best way to respond to an unloving rebuke you receive? Mm. So we're assuming that the rebuke is true. Um, they just haven't practiced Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. It's, a, <laughs> it's an unloving truth. I'm not, I'm, we're trying to mind read again, and I, trying to, um, I was trying because I don't remember the in Proverbs it, it talks about whatever, um, however the rebu- rebuke comes to you, whether it's from a fool, hmm. you still need to take it. It doesn't matter the delivery. It would be nice. Truth and love is very nice. Yeah, especially. So that's very something to work towards. But if it's not, even if a fool is giving you the rebuke, um, to take it. Do you remember where that is? I don't, but um, if I follow a little further along in the same passage that John was talking about there, FUD, sorry, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, the scripture talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger. And so... um, how that might play in together with that is if you receive a rebuke that's not particularly lovingly in its format, but it's still true, sometimes it's really hard not to just kind of go back at it. That, that oftentimes will really ignite a fire. Um, and so sometimes practicing the, pay, the, the, the spiritual discipline of silence is really a good tool at that point. In other words, if you think you're getting ignited to respond angrily, just be quiet and let some hours pass so that you can really think through that and then go back and say, you know, babe, uh, I think what you said was true, but man, I did not like the way you said that. Can we talk about that? So part of that is, is putting a governor on your own response and then coming back and speaking, modeling, if you will, back to them the truth and love. Here, yeah, I think you, yeah, I think you nailed me, but boy, you, you not only nailed me with truth, you nailed me with how you said it. Can we talk about that? So I think that would be a good approach. Next question. Marriage is meant to be permanent and display... Marriage is meant to be permanent and display the gospel. So why did Jesus give an exception clause in Matthew 19, 9? All right, grab your Bibles. Let's, let's have a... a here's, go ahead. Here's your seminary class. Yeah. I'm going to take as short as I can, but it's probably about a three or four minute answer if you let me just rifle through one. And then if you want to chat about it more, we can on that. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Most scholars who study the New Testament will tell you that Mark was written first. Most will agree with that. Of the four Gospels, and then, the, then Matthew and Luke will take what Mark wrote and add other pieces to the story. It's called the Synoptic Gospels. If you read in, in um, Mark chapter 10, and then you go down to verse 11 and 12, if you're looking at your Bibles, notice what Jesus says. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she, marry, or if she herself divorces and, uh, her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. There's no exception clause there. So Jesus has not given permission in the Gospel of Mark for that. Go over to Luke chapter 16. And look at verse 18 real quick. Luke 16 and 18 says... Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one and uh, who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. There's no exception clause in Luke. So now in two Gospels, in Mark and in Luke, there's no exception clause that Jesus utters. Now if you go back, go back to Matthew or 19 is where 
uh, the question probably comes from. You could also look at Matthew 5, but Matthew 19 real quick. Notice what it says here in verse 9 of Matthew 19. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and here's that phrase, the exception clause, except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So here's a way to ask the question, why would it not be in Mark and not be in Luke, but it is in Matthew? The options you seem to have is either the Scripture's contradicting itself, or perhaps there was something happening in the audience that was reading Matthew that wasn't in the audience of Mark and Luke. In other words, Mark was written to Romans, Luke to the Gentiles, but Matthew was written to the Jews. So there would there be a reason for Jesus to say this to the Jews? And the, the, I think the proper answer to that is back in Matthew chapter 1, if you'll go back there real quick. If you look at verse 18, I'm going to read this. This is the New American Standard. Yours might say it's just a tad bit different, but there's a key word there. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, does anybody else have a different word there? Pledged. pledged. Anybody else a different one? Okay. Well, they were pledged. In other words, they weren't yet married. So this is um, when Jesus' mother Mary had been pledged or betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, didn't want to disgrace her by divorcing her now wait a minute weren't, they weren't yet married but he was going to divorce her does that make sense so in other words was there something happening in the jewish culture where you were legally considered married even though you weren't officially married through sexual intercourse yet and that was called a betrothal year, where they actually had a, a betrothal where they legally you had, if you wanted to break, it's kind of similar to our engagement, but in that culture, if you wanted to break the engagement, you had to literally get a divorce from the legal authorities. But they were not actually married yet. So perhaps this is the only gospel that that shows up in, and it's the only gospel that explains that part of Mary and Joseph. So perhaps what Jesus is saying is that, like my parents, if someone's unfaithful during the betrothal period, it would have been totally legitimate to separate. But in any other case, just like it says in Mark and Luke and 1 Corinthians 7, Romans chapter 7, if, if you divorce, you've put asunder what God has put together, and no one should do that. That's my, uh, I think I did it in under three minutes. That's pretty quick. I realize that that probably raised a ton of questions. And just to let you know, in a seminary class, I spend eight weeks on that. So. I would encourage if you have any more follow-up questions to, to seek them out afterwards. Yeah, I'd be so happy to. Moving. Let's go. Yeah. Let's keep going. Um, the exception clause has had a lot of ink spilled here. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you think unmarried couples should take this information about marriage and their preparation or hope for marriage to focus on God, yet not overstep into things meant for marriage? How, let me read the first part again. How do you think unmarried couples should take this information about marriage? And, well, um, I don't think it necessarily means sex. Maybe it means in, in, in husbands leading. So how do boyfriends lead? Um, not overstepping. Uh, maybe what's, if she's still under the, the, the oversight of her, of her dad. Things like that. 
I'll start off. I'd love to make some comments there. I, I do think that um, our culture, because we're a little bit nutty, we go from friendship or non-friendship. In other words, people barely know each other, and they jump all the way into exclusively committed relationships. And so because of that, what happens is you, you miss this really important friendship curve in um, in male-female relationships. And what then takes place is prematurely couples who are, are what we now call dating, it's really more of advanced courtship in the way that our culture does this, but they start talking about marriage way before they should. And so by a guy having, uh, you know, they, they have five dates, they decide that we're exclusively dating each other, and then within a couple of days or weeks they're, they're talking about marriage plans and things like that. Well, what that tends to do is raise the gal's expectations, and then the guy oftentimes kind of backs out, and she's just devastated. And they've not had any physical, it's just the emotions of the heart. So I think what oftentimes we need to do is to back down into this prolonged friendship period where you have more group dating and more context where you're, you're not exclusively alone together talking about your relationship. C.S. Lewis makes a really important point here. He says that friendships among men oftentimes happen shoulder to shoulder. In other words, you start working together, and as you move forward, your friendship oftentimes comes close together. Females, however, tend to want to do a face-to-face kind of friendship building where it's all just intense and we're talking about each other. I think what happens is a lot of the passivity among men is in dating relationships. We allow this to happen before we should. And so the relationship moves emotionally really deeply prior to when I think the context of the, of the relationship really has grown enough to let that happen. So on a practical level, I think extend the courtship period and do it more group-oriented. I think it would be one really important way to get after this question, especially the younger you are. If you're high school or in college, the chances of you getting married real soon are pretty far out in the future. So if you start talking about marriage and you've got three years before you get married, think what's going to happen to your sexual temptation. So I think that would be one particular question on that. Do you have some thoughts? I think another one would be, uh, I do think in terms of headship and submission, because you're not married yet, you have to be very careful with that. Um, and I do think it's wise for guys to be demonstrating service and leadership but not taking on that full authority until you're into the marriage at its fullest point. Places I think you ought to be really careful when you're in courtship or dating relationships is that you're very careful with the spiritual things that you do together. And here's what I mean by that. I would recommend that when you're spiritually engaged with one another, that's primary in public settings. Because the relationship between a man and a woman and the souls are meant to grow as they grow spiritually together to be expressed then physically in that order. So the more time you spend praying alone together, you actually become more vulnerable to sexual temptations. So if you're going to pray together, I would recommend that you pray together in public settings before a date, maybe at the end of the date, but not long prolonged ones at late at night, not a lot of alone prayers, uh, things like that, just to guard the spiritual. Because in, in a world that's rightly ordered, the spiritual leads to the physical, not the other way around. So there's a few thoughts on that. Yeah, that's good. All right. Next, um, why do men give up so easily on their leading role in the family? Why do women tend to take the leading role in the family? I think one reason why men give up so easily is because women so quickly take it. And that if we were slower to take the control or lead of the family and just allow the men to grow into that, 
they would grow quicker. If, if you're already leading, why does the men, man need to do it? Except for that God calls him to do it. <laughs> but that doesn't... Um, details. But that doesn't... That doesn't... Um, encourage the man you you're not encouraging the man to lead if you just take the reins yourself quickly I, let me that's not only do i really affirm that let me suggest that perhaps this started in dating in other words in a dating relationship if the girl's the stronger one of the two girls back out of that relationship just back out of it because you don't want to be having this problem the rest of your marriage so if he's not leading you while you're dating, then he's not going to lead you when you're married, probably. I mean, God willing, he'll grow and that sort of thing. But remember, you can't change him, so you're marrying what you get. And what that does 10 years down the road is he's not doing anything spiritually, and you're feeling alone in an island, and you're wondering how to get here. It's because you married a wimp, and you knew he was a wimp ahead of time, but you were in love and wanted to follow that. So obviously I'm being very kind of brash in the way I say that, so take that all with some gentleness that I didn't actually say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other place I would suggest, if you, if you wanted to look in your Bibles at um, the curse of what happened when Adam and Eve sinned to the woman, the Lord says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. That's real obvious and clear what that means. Uh, in pain, you will bring forth your children. And then it says this, yet your desire will be for your husband that he'll rule over you. And I think you can take this a number of different ways, but that it will be the case where oftentimes in a woman, her desire will be to have his place, and then he'll have to fight you for it. And um, another way that you could look at this verse is he's going to rule over you, and you'll become a doormat. So I do think it's the tendency because of the fall that we're going to have this push and pull in relation to the husband and wife relationship on there. But I do think, again, we will probably, if you talk to us very long, you'll hear us say these kind of things often. Who you are now is a mini version of who you are later unless some things change, and that is the Word of God in your life. And so if He is not leading you well when you're dating, then He's probably not going to lead you well when you're married. Um, and likewise, I think... I, I just do think because of the fall, there's a tendency for guys to step back and to not show that leadership. And that's why I think probably FUD does with this and with the church is that with every man, they need to be constantly pushed, lead, lead, lead. And so if you see your pastors doing that to you, say, man, okay, I need your help, but I really want to receive this. Yeah, I think the, the, the number one answer to the first question, why do men give up so easily, is because they're lazy. I think that's probably the number one answer. Yeah, and if if I could ask you, why are men lazy? Because of Genesis chapter three. Yeah, because they're sinners. Yeah. yeah. So I do think there's a there's a curse issue going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so wives, um, other men push other men to lead, ask them questions all the time. How's your marriage? How are you leading? Wives, um, if your husband is lazy spiritually, encourage. Don't say, "Come on, lead me." Because that means you're still leading. Right? So, um, encourage them. Um, encourage them. Let me give you a great example of this, how this happened in our marriage. We were, uh, you know, I told you a little bit about my family. We were just, uh, you know, you see the bumper sticker, Imagine World Peace. In our case, it was World Peas in our house. I mean, just, you know, food fights and just the dinner table was a, was a complete disaster where I grew up. My wife's family was really different. I and mean, when we had kids that were FUD's kids' age, um, 
my children, we were, we didn't realize, I didn't realize that we were in the disposition of the kids would ask mom if it was okay to leave the dinner table. And, uh, I didn't realize for me, it was just, yeah, that's just kind of the way I've seen it. If, if you even asked at all, you know, so one night, and I remember this clear as day, my wife looked over at my son and said, I don't know, ask your father. Son said to mom, mom, can I leave the dinner table? And the wife said, I don't know, ask your father. And that flicked a switch in me that I was, from that point on, I realized, hey, this is my job. So what she did, instead of nagging me, she put the kids oriented in the right direction, and that called me up. And it was really, really helpful in our marriage, just that little thing. It could be a number of things in your own context, but that was a really big one. Did you want to say? The last thing is just while you're waiting for your husband to lead is to pray and be silent frequently. Thank God, silence. All right, the next question. Um, Sometimes the past brings back feelings of frustration. How can I avoid letting my frustration leak into my relationship? So I'm I'm assuming forgiveness has been extended already, but there's still feelings of frustration from past. How can they avoid the frustration? In my office, I have a desk. And in my desk, I have a top right-hand drawer, and that drawer is empty. But when students come and ask me um, about how to solve life problem issues, I tell them I have a silver bullet in there. Why don't you go find it? And they open the drawer in my top right, and it's empty. And the simple lesson from that is that there are no silver bullets for these kind of issues. The silver bullet, if you would. You know what I mean by silver bullet in the old... uh, Werewolf stories, you needed a silver bullet to kill the werewolf and it would die like that. Well, in this case, I think this is one of those things you practice the right things over a long period of time and you get changed. And this is the hard part of Christian discipleship is that these things don't happen like this. So when you practice the willful choice that Carrie talked about and that replacement principle, you have to realize at times these things are going to leak in and you just simply are going to be frustrated. But you go back to the right source and extend that repeated pattern over time and life changes. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have a serum or a bullet to give you on that one. you have any thoughts on that? Well, acting in love towards that person, so putting your... Um, not dwelling on the on the frustrations, but capturing those thoughts, like I said before, and then and then putting actions to that love. Sometimes the emotions come behind that. All right, you discussed how we celebrate the wedding day. How do we, as friends, support newlyweds? So everything pushes towards that day, that day, that day, and then all right, there it is. Good job, and we kind of aren't there with them anymore. How can we continue to be there with them? Now that they're married over the next year, two years. Can speak to that? Those of you who are single or who are engaged or getting ready to be married, um, I would highly recommend, and many, some of you may already be engaged and have some things in play here, but I'd really highly recommend that you get married in the church you're currently a member in. And that the person who does the wedding and the marriage counseling, the premarital counseling, is someone from the the church that you're in so that when the marriage then happens you're already in the context where everything has been kind of flowing on that that's i think that's a really big part of that but i think even extended beyond that um i do think 
the, the being willing to ask not privacy questions about their intimacy, but asking questions about how are things going and is there any way that we can serve you is really a, a very important ongoing disposition of the, of the church around the believers. Um, I think oftentimes when we get married and do our marital, marital counseling in another context then come into the church, that oftentimes undercuts some of our most important um, value systems and support systems on that. So I would say that would be certainly one of them. Um, I guess as friends you have to juggle the, the balance of um, leaving them alone and letting them develop their new married relationship and being in their lives because they still need um the guy needs guy friends and the girl needs girlfriends and um that's very important um so you have to kind of walk walk that line and then encourage the newlyweds to um be in a discipleship relationship with an older couple as they're learning their the newlyweds are learning their new role roles as husband and wife yeah, newlyweds, if you felt really surrounded um, going into marriage, and now that you're not, now that you are married, you feel like that's gone. Um, you, you need to you need to find people and tell them that in yeah. your community group or yeah, for sure. Um, don't just let allow yourself to feel continually like you don't have any support. Um, and then you guys that are that are been married a while, um, you know what it's like. To, to be newly married and need people around you. And so take that, that difficult step of saying, hey, can we have dinner and let's, let's talk about how things are going. Yeah. Things could be great, but you never know. So I would say reach out and, and, and really have these conversations. And newlyweds, um, this is what I thought uh, when I was newlywed. I thought that it was embarrassing to have problems already. Yeah. Like in the year six months I've already got these huge like issues that's insane don't be embarrassed like be honest I mean there's there's no reason to not be honest so if you're newlywed and you have problems that's nothing embarrassing as a matter of fact everyone has those in six months three months so um, don't be embarrassed and feel like I can't believe we already had issues like we're not even a year in that's that's actually normal because you're both sinners so, is that the last question? I think so. Let's tell. We'll tell a thirty-second story about that. We went. We were being discipled by a, a couple as our first year of marriage, and we were having dinner with them. And the six of us that were being discipled, and the couple that were there, so eight of us at the table, were going around and just give a quick synopsis of your first year of marriage. And as it went around the table, I was before Harry was in this order, and I described our marriage in glowing terms. It was the most wonderful first year of my. You know, I just can't imagine a better year of my life. And then it went to Harriet. I said, being the sensitive person I am, it was the worst year of my life. <laughs> so not long after that, we were in counseling and we... <laughs> we're better now. Yeah. Yeah, it's coaching. So I do think that uh, your point is, is really a good one, that oftentimes there's just lots of bumps and it's good to get coaching. It's good to have people in your life. So, Well, um, Mark, will you close our time in prayer? Yeah. And then after that... I'd be we'll... delighted. Lord, again, we come with open hands and we recognize that um, just like the book title we have in our hands, just like what we've talked about all morning, we are sinners who have said, I do. And for some, they will in the future say, I do as sinners. But Lord, if we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we have all the resources necessary so that our marriages would be a beautiful and fragrant aroma to the king of the universe. 
So as we finish our day today, Lord, would you give us great hope? We've told some stories of despair today, but the best story we've heard is the one of great hope that started in Genesis and is culminated in the cross in terms of the completion of the work and now gets to be lived out until you come back, Lord Jesus. So help us live in the great hope that by fixing our hope on you, you would help us to be the men and women, the couples married that you desire for us to be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. We want to just say thank you for inviting us. It's been a joy to be with you all. We'll be around for a little bit if anybody wants to engage uh, with some conversation.